Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. Well, welcome, Daniel Opong, to the Happy at Work podcast. We're so glad you can join us. Thanks for having me, Laura. It's great to be here with you all. Very good. Very great to have you. So let's start from the beginning, really, and tell us a bit about your career journey and kind of how you've gotten to where you are and really how you got to the point of starting the Courage Collective. Yeah, so pretty eclectic and maybe unusual path to my current career. I got my start in nonprofit. And so I worked with college students, first gig out of school. Uh, Then I transitioned and went up to Gonzaga, uh, studied organizational leadership and got a master's degree there. And then I found myself moving to Nashville. Uh, I worked at a venture capital fund. And it's interesting because I never worked in venture, never worked in healthcare, never worked in tech. And I got a gig at a health tech venture capital fund. Irony was very interesting for me, but I was ahead of people there and, and talent. And so I did all the people growth and strategy for the VC fund, did all the hiring, thought about culture and how do we create great places to work, and then also supported our portfolio companies in their growth as well. So I did that for about four years. And then I found myself transitioning up to work with you at Limeade. And so that's where Laura and I got to connect. Uh, I was first on the account side, and then I worked on the people team as well. And when I think about kind of the transition into the Courage Collective, 2020 came. And I, I think for a lot of us, it was both a, I'll say for me, it was a pretty disillusioning and galvanizing experience, right? It made me think about my priorities and values and what do I want my both impact and contribution to be to the collective conversation around equity, inclusion, liberation, justice? And so that was that was a catalyst for me to start the Courage Collective. And so I uh, started that in 2020 and have been working on it ever since. That's fantastic. And um, I also come from a healthcare background in uh, diversity, equity, inclusion. So really love to hear that as far as the types of clients that you work with, can you talk a little bit about the types of clients? Are they big? Are they small? And what are some of the themes that you see emerging from these clients as as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion? Sure. So our client or our book of business is, is pretty broad. So we've worked with Fortune 500 companies and, you know, 10-person startups. And I think what's interesting to me is that no matter where they are in size and scale, they're all trying to solve similar human-centered problems and create cultures that are great for people. When I think about specific themes and challenges that we see in these organizations, one of the main things I have to call out is Uh, Sometimes the dissonance that exists between the way that executive leaders perceive and experience the organization and the way that the employees do, right? So that's an ongoing theme. One of the things that we see is like when you think about the composition of an executive leadership team, often it's made up of people who are from majority groups, right? And so we're thinking about white, potentially male, not always, but often, right? White, male, cisgendered, heterosexual, some of these things that 
are centered in American society. And when I say centered, I mean they often are assigned certain levels of value. And so they have a very specific experience within the organization. And sometimes that's different than, you know, someone from a historically excluded or marginalized group. So when we're thinking about creating cultures that are great for people, often leaders maybe don't connect with some of the perils or challenges that someone from an underrepresented group experiences you know, what is my growth trajectory? What does it mean for me to experience a sense of belonging? Sometimes there isn't a connection there. And so one of the things that we try to do when we work with companies is how do we reconcile that dissonance, right? How do we create perspective on what is it that your employees really want to feel? How do they experience a sense of belonging? And how do we make sure that the leaders understand that? So I'd say that's one theme. The second one that I think is pretty, we experience pretty often is uh, leaders either are taking a pretty reactive or acute approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And when we say reactive, it's like something bad happens in the world. Oh, no, we don't know what to do. So we need to quickly get these systems in place. So it's not something that has been proactive and thought about holistically. It's more of a reactive thing. Or they'll take an acute approach, which is let's celebrate you know, cultural holidays, which has value. But that's not holistic, or let's hire more people of color or LGBTQ folks. But that's different than thinking about like, what are the systems that are in place to support, let's say people with disabilities? How are you creating that across the entirety of the organization? And so one of the things we try to encourage organizations to do is to take a more holistic view on what does it mean to create a culture of belonging? So who is this for? You know, How are we actually doing this? Those are things that we ask organizations often. So I have a quick follow-up to that because what I find really interesting is when you talk about that dissonance between leadership and the rest of the organization, especially people of color or other minority groups, um, one of the areas I'm really interested in, and I think this is emerging out of the hashtag MeToo movement mm -hmm. and around George Floyd, is... Um, is brand and you know companies that want to hashtag BLM but haven't really uh -huh. operationalized those values within the organization. So when you say that companies might be reactive, they might be or even acting out of um, from an acute perspective, which is oh wow, this is a big movement happening. We need to have a voice in this movement and so forth. What is your advice to companies who have not done the work? to actually operationalize those values that they want to espouse through their brand mm. because it's what helps them connect to the end customer? Yeah, I think it's it's a great question. Simply put, it'll show over time how committed and invested you are in the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. This is one of the reasons why I struggle with the business case for DEI, because if we think about the broader system of capitalism, basically what the business case says is if you do these things, it will help you make more money. And so as companies are kind of implementing these ideas, if they don't see returns or ROI really quickly, then like, okay, well, the business case hasn't been achieved, so we're going to deprioritize it. And what I would say is like really meaningful diversity, equity, and inclusion it takes time and you have to invest in it over time. You have to explore the systems, the structures, the strategies, the policies, procedures, all of that. And then you also have to think about how are people experiencing this culture? So if your intent as an organization is just to do this from a brand and optics perspective, it's pretty short-sighted and it'll fizzle out pretty quickly. And so again, our encouragement is like, let's think about this holistically. And I think employees really know, you know, 
is my organization sincere and serious about these efforts or are they just doing it in a reactive fashion just to be on the right side? And I think for me, it's, it's about being honest about your intentions and, and really investing that over time. Daniel, I really appreciate your response. It reminds me, you know, about the, the authenticity of really wanting to do the right thing in the nineties when I was working on wall street, that was when they first started well-being conferences. And I remember going to my first well-being conference and they gave me a toothbrush and that was it. <laughs> and I thought that's, I, don't, I think we need more than that. Right. So I, I appreciate your response. I wanted to pivot and, um, you know, talk about positive psychology. Obviously, our our podcast is focused on that. And I know that you're focusing on courage and empathy is also in your 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 wheelhouse. How does positive psychology fit with the work that that you're currently doing? Yeah, good question. So when I think about positive psychology, I think about themes like well-being, uh, flourishing, you know, feeling a sense of fulfillment and purpose at work, and the integration of like what it means to be human at work. And so for me, positive psychology, some of those core tenets and aspects are pretty inextricable from diversity, equity, and inclusion. The main question is, who is exper- what is who is experiencing what at work and how does it feel? So for me as a black man and I show up at work, my experience might be different than you all who are on the call, but still, how do we create an environment that is great for people? And so those core tenets of uh, positive psychology, specifically well-being and feeling a sense of fulfillment, that's what I think about. And when I look at leaders, part of the question that we ask or we have to call out is, you know, different people experience cultures and organizations in different ways. No group is monolithic. And so when we're thinking about some of these themes of positive psychology, what is the application for the unique identities that are part of your workforce? Those are some of the questions that I would want to ask. And another thing that I feel like I have to call out specifically on this theme of positive psychology and even positivity is this notion of toxic positivity and the ways in which toxic positivity actually sabotages meaningful diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And when I say to- toxic positivity, I'm talking about the inclination to bright side things or look for the silver lining and everything. And it, it results in platitudes like, um, you know, everything happens for a reason and everyone can succeed if they work hard, but that's not true for everyone. Right. And so going beyond that notion of toxic positivity, I think sometimes that approach actually minimizes suffering and it doesn't allow people to share their authentic experiences. And so what I advocate for more so is thinking about what are the core human experiences, right? And if we're actually trying to create cultures that are great for people, we have to understand how they're experiencing the culture and then embed those themes of positive psychology into the interventions that we create for employees to make sure their employee experience is meaningful. And I'm curious what you feel about positive psychology being all access to all people wherever they are in the world. And when I was at Penn getting a master's in positive psych, it was a privilege to be there. And we had some students in our cohort uh, who are from African-American communities in Philadelphia, and they made some really interesting points of when you say go out and take a walk in nature, (laughs) That might not be accessible to me or, hey, take a day off and treat yourself. I might not be able to afford that. And I'm curious if you feel that positive psychology is accessible to all. And if not, do you think that there's interventions where it really could be accessible to anyone? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think that 
again, what I mentioned earlier, no group is monolithic. And so what I have access to based upon how I show up in the world, what I've experienced is even different than my siblings. We come from the same bloodline, right? But we all have different experiences. And so what well-being means to me or the, the idea of access, what that means to me is going to be different. And so I think these blanket kind of generalized ideas, sometimes they don't actually hit the mark of what people are actually needing. And so when I think about what interventions actually work, we have to think about it multidimensional and multifaceted, right? And so, you know, maybe it is something around uh, mental health and well-being. Maybe it is something around exercise. Maybe it is something around, you know, feeling supported as a caregiver. I think it has to be multidimensional and multifaceted in order to be meaningful. And we can't expect everyone to respond to the same stimuli the same way. That's just not real life, right? So I think about if we're actually looking to meet people where they are, what is it that actually meets them where they are? Starts with listening and empathy and engaging them yeah. on that level. I just want, I wanted to ask you a follow-up about um, that, about the empathy topic, Daniel. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to also one of the things you, points you made at the very beginning um, about this, the reconcile, reconciling the difference between the leader's experience and employee experience. And one of the things that kind of blows my mind uh, that I have seen happen over and over again is it seems like leaders have to experience it themselves mm -hmm. before they think it's real. And yeah. it drives me bonkers. <laughs> Let me <laughs> just be honest. I don't know if you have any thoughts on how do we get people to see that? No, no, no. It doesn't have to be you who experiences that hard thing in order for you to have empathy or to feel for other people who are going through that hard thing. Yeah. It's interesting to explore um, intellectualizing a concept versus experiencing it. Right. And so right. I think sometimes that creates a fundamental tension. Um, I remember I was working in an organization one time and uh, a black woman at the executive level came into the organization and spoke very directly to the experience, her experience as a black woman in a way that connected with the other black employees. To that point, there hadn't been any leaders who had engaged that topic in the same way. And, and why could she come in and speak to that? Well, because she lived it. She talked about in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, she went to you know the police department with her son to say, hey, this is my son. If you see him, he is not a threat. I want to make sure that he's okay. Right? So thinking about specifically for her, she could relate that in a way that we could connect with it, right? Because she shared our experience. I do think there is intentional work that can be done around cultivating space for empathy and compassion. And I think sometimes it means you have to get beyond the perspective of like, my experience is the only one that exists. It's not. Fundamentally. And so for me, I mean, I think about even in our work and DEI work, I went to a listening session session the other day, and it was for people who experienced disabilities. And they were sharing some of their challenges, practical things like, you know, uh, when I'm watching our, our company campaigns and commercials, sometimes it's too vibrant and I have to turn it off because it, it's triggering for me in certain ways. So what are the interventions that are needed for someone like that? I, that's not an experience I've had, but I can connect with that because I went, I listened, I engaged, and I'm like, okay, now I can be more mindful about the way that I show up and even design things with that unique identity in mind. And so I think part of it comes down to really active listening and not even just listening, but the integration of that listening, right? We think about you know the Me Too movement and some of the challenges that people who identify as women have had. 
in the workplace with toxic masculinity and the like. I'm like, okay, well, how can I create space to empathize with that experience and be mindful of the way that I'm showing up so that they feel supported and empowered, right? So it's things like that. It's the listening, it's the empathy, it's the integration and turning that into meaningful action. And I think with leaders, sometimes my observation is maybe they don't feel like they have to respond until it hits them at a more personal level. And so we're thinking about, you know, the bottom line or people leaving the organization or bad press. And it's unfortunate that that's the motivator sometimes. But I've also seen leaders who really care deeply and it just clicks with them and they they operationalize it because of the value that they want to create and the values that they have personally. So I don't think it's a straight line. I think part of it is uh, you have to recognize where you are, be mindful of that, and be committed to the the process of evolution and growth in order to really serve your people in a meaningful way. That is wonderful. And, you know, when you just shared that, really that intervention that you did for yourself and being able to actively listen to this population, um, what are some things that you do as far as approaches that you take with companies, sure. especially if companies might be just wanting to check the box for compliance reasons or other sure. types of reasons? How do you develop that meaningful connection with these companies? And, and really, what approaches or interventions do you take? Yeah, so one of the main ones that we focus on is this idea of the way that diversity, equity, and inclusion intersects with the employee journey or the employee experience. So, so often companies think about DEI work in, like I mentioned, maybe a cultural celebration, maybe we'll have employee resource groups. Or, you know, maybe we'll do an unconscious bias training or focus on recruiting. But in our mind, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And so when we think about the bigger picture, one of the interventions we encourage is how do we think about DEI as it relates to the employee journey? So the employee journey is before someone starts the organization, while they're at your organization, and once they leave your organization. The truth is DEI needs to be woven through every single one of those touch points. So for example, before someone starts the organization, it could be something like, you know, if I go to your website, do I see people who look like me in leadership? Do I see a commitment to equity, inclusion, and belonging? You know, when I'm looking at the job descriptions, do they have inclusive language, right? Are they specific? Are Is it gendered language or is it is it language that actually includes different identity groups, right? So those are things that we can consider uh, on the pre-employment front. When we look at during employment, we're thinking about things like who has access to growth and promotion within the organization, right? So who is experiencing an opportunity to progress, who has influence, et cetera. That's one of the things that we think about. We also think about things like the holiday calendar, right? Most holiday calendars are oriented around Christian norms. And so, you know, if I'm Muslim, for example, I may not be able to celebrate, I would have to take PTO to celebrate my holiday. And so thinking about things like that, that make it more inclusive in the during employment. And then post-employment, we're looking at things like exit interview data. What are the themes that we're understanding from exit interviews? People will be really honest when they're on the way out of the organization, right? And so what are the things that we're learning there? And then when we go to Glassdoor reviews, what are the things that we're learning? So holistically, that's one of the things that we encourage. Like it's not just about hiring, because even if you hire people from underrepresented groups, what's going to happen when they get there, right? We talked to a company the other day that they're like, yeah, we're having some major retention challenges. We have, it's okay. Like we're pretty good at attracting talent, but we can't keep them. 
And I think a lot of companies index on the recruiting, but they don't think about the culture of inclusion and belonging. So that's one of the primary ones. Another one that I'd love to mention really quickly is just this idea of going beyond binary thinking and holding two truths. And so whenever we work with organizations, one of the things that comes up, and I think we live in a culture right now that is pretty binary and polarized, right? good or bad, right or wrong, Republican or Democrat, and we just separate on those binaries. And one of the things we try to encourage is like two things can be true at the same time. And so when we're looking at um, holistic and strategic and even human-centered responses to the things that are happening in cultures, it can be true that you care about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and also true that you have no clue where to start. One doesn't eliminate the other. It's not a zero-sum game. They're not mutually exclusive. And so we try to help people embrace that nuance and think about like, no, it's not all or nothing. It doesn't have to be. Uh, my colleague Nani, she talks about that a lot. And so holding two truths and making sure that we create space for those. So those are two of the primary interventions that we think about or approaches that we use when we're working with companies. I love that holding two truths. That's so good. It just, and you just we tend to think that way all the time, don't we? All it's this time. or that, yep. either or, yep. and it's, oh, it's just painful. Um, so do you have any stories you could share with us of maybe some clients you've worked with, or maybe something that you've worked on with your clients, um, and just how, you know, how you've done some of this really important work? Yeah, a couple come to mind. One was a recent project where we were working with, uh, an academic institution, one of the bigger ones in in Washington state. And they had invited us in to think about with academic advisors, how do they better support students from historically marginalized groups? And so when we think about the role of a academic advisor, you know, they have a lot of things going on in the day, quite a few students that they're working with day to day. And then they have 15 minutes to think about how can I best show up with the student, right? And so we we met with their ac- academic advisors to think about like, how can we move from more of a transactional interaction to more of a relational and transformational interaction? And so we were able to engage them. But one of the things that we found really quickly is like, we need to lead with empathy for the academic advisors. They have a hard job. And so we created some space for empathy. We did some listening sessions and focus groups and then turned that into, you know, some encouraging and practical things that they could implement in working with the students. So practical things like, you know, holding space, leading with curiosity as opposed to solutions, things like that, that I think some of them walked away with key takeaways in order to better serve students. So that's one that I think about, like bigger picture distilled into meaningful human-centered action. Another one that comes up is we were working with a tech company recently. I think they're based in the Bay Area. And similarly, they had had employees who had questions like, what is our point of view as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion? I'm not feeling the way that I want to feel here. And what we found as we kind of got into it, similarly, we did focus groups and held space for employees. One of the themes that came out is very clearly people experience organizational culture in different ways. That's not unique to that organization, but that was something that came out loud and clear. So we take that feedback back to the leaders And it was really interesting. It was almost like the leaders hadn't really had the type of conversation that we were able to facilitate with them, right? We held space for the leaders. We got curious with them about their own perspective, their own challenges. You know, when something bad happens in the world, how do you want to engage and respond as leaders? And basically, we were able to facilitate with them 
the kind of conversation that the employees have been wanting to have with the leaders. And afterwards, we followed up with the head of people and like, hey, have you ever had that type of dialogue before? And she said, no, we haven't. It was really meaningful. And so we think about the ways in which, you know, I think sometimes leadership can be a pretty dehumanizing role, right? Because you're looked at as, um, you know, this person who's just supposed to champion the vision, et cetera but creating space for their human experience in a way that they can feel seen and connected and then translate that to their employees through meaningful action on the equity and inclusion front. It was, it was a pretty meaningful engagement. So those are things that I think about as to like why this work is, is important to me. Um, not always easy, right? Because I think everyone comes from different experiences, but it's still meaningful. So. Daniel, I, I've really enjoyed this interview. I think we all have. And, and one way that we can tell is we go into flow and lose track of time. And go, <laughs> oh, wow, we're, we're on the last question. So I'm going to close this out. And I want to ask, do you have any words of advice that you'd like to leave with our listeners? And with specific reference to the people who say, I realize that the world is changing for the better. I have to, I have to figure this out. I don't really know where to start. I don't really know how to do this. Any advice for people who are willing but just aren't really sure what the right thing to do is? How, how would someone begin? Yeah, um, I appreciate the question. And I think it really depends on who you are. But one of the things that we come back to often is just this idea of identity, right? And, and I think one of the fundamental pieces of understanding diversity, equity, and inclusion work is understanding identity and intersectionality. Identity being, I carry a collection of unique identities that even you all on the call may not share. And if I can start there and fundamentally understand that based upon my identity, I've had different experiences than you and then Laura and the all of you have had, we carry different experiences. So how then does that impact the way that I move through the world or that you move through the world? How does that impact the way that you move through systems? What are What is the power that I might have that other per people may not have based upon just this fundamental thing of identity? Like I'm the son of immigrant parents. My dad moved here with $7 in his bank account, so he says, right? And so I think about where he came from and then how that has impacted my own trajectory. How does that impact and influence my identity? So I think about that just being a fundamental thing to reflect on. Where do we come from? We all come from somewhere. And what are the unique collections that inform, unique collection of experiences that inform how we show up in the world? So I think that's one of the fundamental things that I would start with. And then I would also, the second thing I would say is that in order for change and transformation to happen, it has to be sustained and requires both individual and collective action it, it requires change on the personal and policy level. And so if someone is trying to start this work and they're like, okay, well, I'll just read how to be anti-racist. I mean, well-intentioned, but I think it has to be significantly more robust of an engagement than that. And so thinking about the different ways that transformation happens and like, what is our role in that? Encouraging people to reflect on their own identity and then commit to the ongoing work that actually creates lasting and sustainable change. Beautiful. Daniel, so much for, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. We really appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners are going to love this interview. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. 
See you soon. Bye.